The winners are Al Kasha and Joel Hershon. We may never love like this again. That's wonderful. Hello and welcome back from the summer break. I hope you've all had a good July and you are ready for this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Carl. And today we are taking on a category that we've never done without involving Phil Collins. The best original <laughs> song category. Um, and this year we're taking on 1974. Um, a wild time for this category, the 70s. Uh, this was your pick. Why did you go for best original song 1974? Well, um, there's no use pretending that I didn't pick this category because of Benji. Um, <laughs> I was I was searching through the original song nominees and thought, you know, what's Benji? So I looked at the trailer on YouTube and was, you know, amazed by the lengths they seemed to have gone to um, and wanted to watch the whole thing. So that was the reason, basically. But aside from that, the films themselves, certainly very diverse. Um, yes. I Honestly, this doing this podcast it just goes from strange to stranger <laughs> sometimes but um yeah some some interesting films this week yeah i love diving into the technical categories and especially best song seems to attract uh a pretty bizarre mix and like i said especially in the 70s uh this category was just nuts um the nominees this year were Benji's theme, I Feel Love, from the film Benji, Blazing Saddles, from Blazing Saddles, Little Prince, from The Little Prince, and then a duo of songs performed by Maureen McGovern, uh, Wherever Love Takes Me, from Gold, and the winner, We May Never Love Like This Again, from The Towering Inferno. So, uh... I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. We'll dive into Benji. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. A bit of background. Benji was actually called um, Higgins in real life, which is an interesting link to um, Pygmalion. But um, he was originally <laughs> the dog in the TV series Petticoat Junction. And... Benji was actually his last acting role, not to spoil um, things, but um, he ended up being replaced by his own daughter, Benjean. So I think we're both dog people. Yes. This did kind of warm my heart in a way, although I'm low on the quality of the movie. <laughs> but um, did this kind of warm the cockles of your heart? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... It's a it's a story about a dog who doesn't talk, so he's just a dog. Um, improbably intelligent, as movie dogs tend to be. Um, 
I think a clear attempt on the part of Joe Camp, the writer, producer, director, uh, to kind of make a 70s lassie, I guess. Um, and yeah, definitely a heart warmer uh, to see Benji running around and enjoying himself with the various townspeople. And then, of course, finding love and getting involved in a, a kidnapping scheme as, as you know, dogs do. So, yeah, I, I have to say, yes, despite the general low quality of the film and the kind of slapdash way it was clearly put together, um, I did enjoy this film quite a lot. I think, like, when you consider how much of the film is just Benji trotting around like the town. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It just cruising about without a care in the world. It does really feel like a bit of a filler job <laughs> um, on behalf of Joe Camp. Like, I love those parts of him going, you know, taking fish out the bin and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But it takes up a lot of an already 80-minute film and in terms of the actual plot, it's barely there, really. You know, the kids are kidnapped and then Benji leads them to where they are. Um, so it's very much a situation where this could be a 25-minute episode in a kids' TV series, really. Uh, I feel like they could have made more of an effort with the plot. Um, but it feels like they thought, we've got this cute dog saving kids and that's enough and probably for most of the audience it would be enough but yeah yeah definitely um i was thinking episodes too maybe two episodes you know benji falls in love and benji saves the day um because yeah if you take out the running around parts it would be yeah easily 30 minutes if that um but they milk a lot out of those running around. You know, there's three distinct <laughs> themes uh, that the soundtrack provides, like, you know, happy running around, sad running around, frantic running around. Um, Benji gets his Oscar clips, you know, when he's formulating a plan and when he sees his girlfriend get kicked and um, and when he thinks all is lost and he just kind of curls up you know, classic, you know, third act turn there where he just feels he's at his lowest point. So, you know, he he gets a lot of time to shine, Benji. I would have to ask Matthew Stewart to calculate his screen time, but it's got to be close to 100%. (laughs) I just love when he's behind the plant, looking at the the ransom note. Um, Yeah, But I think, like, in terms of Joe Camp, there's some quite tongue-in-cheek moments. I don't think, you know, because it's not too sentimental. I feel like it sort of knows that these, you know, that slow-motion montage of Benji and Tiffany (laughs) (laughs) engaged in courtship, you know, with the slushy music. It's complete genius. Um, Because it's right in this period of slushy 70s, cheesy romances and we've got loads of those today to talk about Mm. but I think at the same time it kind of knows that it's completely ridiculous and the same with the the sequence you mentioned with the sad music and the fades (laughs) after um, he's been told off for taking the note 
and he's just sort of lounging about on doorsteps and feeling sorry for himself. So I did feel like Joe Camp does know that those parts are kind of a bit silly, but they worked for the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah, for sure. There's a definite feeling throughout that the filmmakers were having kind of a good time poking fun at some of these tropes and and using them ironically in the story of a a dog who just you know uh well yeah like i said before improbably intelligent and able to really plan ahead in a way that i haven't seen in real life dogs um much i mean i love dogs obviously but yeah uh it's fun to see them in the movies uh like seeing it, I have to admit, Benji uh, got ahead of me at one point. He saw the scrap of paper on the floor and gets really excited and and has to get out of the police station. And at first, I didn't understand why the piece of paper <laughs> excited him so much. And then, like by the time he got out of the police station, I was running back. Then I twigged it. I'm like, "Oh, right! It reminded him of the ransom note." Uh, so. I mean, good job there. Maybe that was me being a bit dense, but still, you know. Good storytelling. Good shot. Yeah. Good. Uh, and But I did like that the guy he was trying to get the attention of had to walk apparently around the entire circumference of the building to get to his car because he kept like Benji kept missing him by seconds and running to a different window and the guy's still just hugging the side of the building <laughs> as he walks around. <laughs> I think it does need to be commended in some way for being this unique style of film because it's it's a bit beyond Lassie in terms of incorporating Benji as an actual character. I feel like Lassie is more just animal instinct. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if maybe Disney should stop trying to remake their films and have them with actual animals in them, you know, like... (laughs) Like a Lady in the Tramp version, but with actual dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, although maybe animal rights activists might not be too happy about that, but um, there are like a couple of dicey moments, I feel, um, stunt-wise. Certainly um, for Tiffany, <laughs> when she's climbing on those beams to get up to the roof, I, my heart was in my mouth a bit watching <laughs> This dog mm-hmm. trying to get up on the roof, like, because it looked like she almost fell a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. Tiffany really uh, sold that stunt. I'm hoping there was maybe somebody just had a shot below her ready to catch her, but yeah. It was the 70s, so probably not. They probably just had another white dog standing by just in case. Um, and yeah, then she then she had to take a kick. Um Although of course you know the ma- the the magic of editing, uh, but then she's lying there perfectly still, and I did actually think, holy shit, they went there. Uh, yeah, Benji. I know she just keels over. <laughs> they couldn't have done that. They couldn't have killed Tiffany off. Yeah, that would have been rough. But I have to imagine there were some crying children in the theater because she's she looks dead, and they cut to her apparently lifeless body a lot in that slow motion montage uh so dang now did did mitch the guy playing mitch did he remind you at all of john lithgow quick aside but could you kind of see john lithgow in in this actor there's a resemblance to me yeah 
Yeah, know? I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, but they're all sort of, they're all quite bad. Yeah, <laughs> the actors in this, because um, it's just it is mediocre in every respect, apart from the canine abilities, <laughs> which are which are really impressive. But on story, plot, dialogue, acting, um, it's sort of all low level stuff, really. Um, it's just the concept behind the film that's kind of semi-ambitious and does make you smile. But in terms of in terms of what it's saying, it's got very basic messages and it's telling us how to feel at every single turn. Um, mm-hmm. But I do feel like this could have been great, but it's just needed more effort made into it, more effort made into the script. Because the concept's there. Yeah, definitely. It seems, yeah, it seems like a kind of quick uh, developed project just as a showcase uh, for this dog, you know, his his jump into film uh, late career after spending most of his time on TV. Um, so, yeah, as a vehicle for Benji, it definitely works. And it does seem like, I mean, I haven't looked, I haven't watched the sequels, but just looking at their plot summaries, it does seem like they got a little more ambitious with the plots as as time went on um because i think that like the third movie in the series benji is like like it's a person possessed by the dog or vice versa or something like that so and that has chevy chase in it so they started to attract some bigger names as the series went on um so after you know part of me does want to watch the rest of them (laughs) yeah I wouldn't mind watching the rest of them, actually. But none of them as part of this podcast, sadly. Uh, no more nominations for for Benji, an original song. Nope. Um, what did you think of I Feel Love, then? I I thought it was... Like, it fit the tone of the film quite nicely. You know, kind of doofy. Kind of enjoyable uh, in a kind of forgettable way. Um and I actually quite enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's the one, until I sat down just before this and listened to all of them again, I think outside of Blazing Saddles, it was the one that I remembered the best. So, you know, that's a point in its favor. Yeah, well, the whole thing plays uh, as well, which helps. And it begins the movie in a positive way. It's an upbeat song, puts you in a warm place. Mm-hmm. The guy's voice... Uh, I think Charlie Rich is the guy singing, but he kind of reminded me a bit of like John Denver, Glenn Campbell, that kind of um, style, because he's got this sort of Western drawl to his voice. But the song's not something I'd put on (laughs) at home or anything. Um, (laughs) It's all right in its way. It suits the film, but it's, it's not particularly ambitious as a song either, so it kind of fits within that mediocre place I think but yeah certainly bop along to it no problem definitely and I think that's uh that's what it was intended to do um and certainly the best part of the soundtrack I think because I initially liked the jaunty Benji uh motif when he's just kind of running around having a good time but when they recycled it for the like eighth time I started to get a little sick of it but yeah, it's a swan song for this dog actor. It's um, 
it's nice. And then his daughter took on the reins. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I mean, considering he was like 17 when they were making this movie, he's pretty spry. Wow. Really? 17? Yeah. I mean, 16, 17, one of their... He, I know he died in 1975, just before he turned 18, so maybe... Yeah, 16, 17, but still, man, he was... He was bringing it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Shouldn't really be asking a 17-year-old dog to start climbing roofs, like... <laughs> no. I mean, I can't... I haven't been able to figure out how old the dog who played Tiffany was, um, but... Yeah, I was very surprised to learn how old Benji or Higgins was. And then, yeah, his daughter, who was named Benjean, uh, took over the role for the next three Benji movies. And there's actually been a couple more. Benji Off the Leash was in 2004, and that was the last one made by Joe Camp. And then I think Netflix did a reboot a few years ago, and that was his son. So they like to keep it in the family. A family of dog lovers, clearly. Clearly. Um, And one more thing I wanted to mention about uh, Benji was the fact that um, his trainer, uh, whose name was Frank Inn, who is apparently kind of a legend in the animal training business uh, of the era, he he adopted Higgins from a shelter in, in 1960. He got all of his animals from shelters. And after Benji became a hit, um, and it became known that the dog who played Benji was a a rescue, it actually led to a significant increase in pet adoptions in the United States. So uh, a lot of dogs uh, found a home because of Benji. Wow. That's a lovely way to end. Beautiful. And so uh, we move on to Blazing Saddles. And uh, this song is... Well, it's a hilarious song, but also um, to a hilarious film. I don't know if uh, how familiar you are with Blazing Saddles, but this is probably the 10th or 15th time I've seen this movie. It's one of my earliest memories is watching this movie uh, as a child. So this this movie has been with me my pretty much my whole life, and I have to say I love it. Well, the first time I watched it, I gave it like two stars. Um and I didn't get it, but watching it again, I found a lot more to like, and it ended up winning me over. Um, I think, you know, as a story, it's very lazy, <laughs> um, and that's what put me off at first. And as a comedy, it isn't laugh out loud funny for me all the time. Like, I think Vincent can be um, wrote back in the day that it, it it sort of looks as if they've included every gag thought up, you know, uh, without sort of filtering anything. And some bits as a result are really funny and some bits don't work for me. Um, but like things like all the members of the council being called Johnson, for instance, like very subtle joke, like <laughs> in the background, I just thought that was really funny. Um, the, everything involving Lily Von Stupp, um and but then some scenes were like what you'd expect from an Adam Sandler comedy, like the farting with the beans, and so it was sort of a real mixed bag for me. But I liked the generosity of them throwing so much at you. Yeah, and I mean, I think that well, maybe Mel Brooks was um, burnt out on making uh, 
restrained movies after making Young Frankenstein the same year and just wanted to cut loose. Um, but I definitely think that it works for the film to be so madcap. I mean, I do agree that it doesn't have the tightness and the coherence of, you know, some of the more legendary comedies. Canby, of course, mentions Buster Keaton, who, of course, you know, his films were, you know, incredibly well-structured and, of course, were amazing. So it doesn't have that, obviously, but um, I think the kind of throwing things at the wall approach works most of the time in this, and there is a method to the madness, certainly. Um, And, of course, the Western was a kind of genre at the time that was, I think, ripe for this kind of irreverent parody uh, because it it was kind of a pretty self-serious thing, especially in the revisionist Western days. It was a lot of doom and gloom. So I kind of appreciate that Mel Brooks made this movie and made that farting scene just to to kind of show that it was a genre that shouldn't be taken too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, because I think... I mean, when it became more about the Western, that's when I became more interested in it. Because at the beginning, it's got, it starts with this very spiky uh, view of race relations that it's probably quite um, close to the bone for the time as well. Um, Mm -hmm. The use of the N-word is bandied about a lot and it's clearly mocking narrow-minded racist views and, you know, criticising the politics of, you know, white men politics with no integrity. Um, but once, I think the film takes a while to find its feet, once the Western tropes become more prominent and the camaraderie begins between the Waco kid and the sheriff and Mongo, who I thought was really funny, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the standouts for me, that's when it became more about a Western plot. I warmed to it and became invested in it as this buddy Western Um Albeit that it's taking the piss out of that, but I liked it when it finally started introducing those elements. Yeah, and the two characters and the two actors have really good chemistry together, so it does. I think it works. If it if it was kind of a more structured uh, buddy comedy, I, I think it would still work with these two characters and these two actors. Um, Gene Wilder, you know, is always great, and Cleavon Little. I'm really glad that. The studio refused to insure Richard Pryor because uh, he was the first choice for Bart. I love Richard Pryor, but I I don't think he would have been as good as Bart uh, as Cleavon Little. No, and not as likable, probably. Um, yeah, Cleavon Little's great. I think I think the acting in general is good. We've got double Gene Wilder this week, which is good. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the best performance in the film for me would be Madeleine Kahn. And yes, definitely. The the I'm Tired number is such a triumph. And, you know, in this very brief performance that she gives, um, it's just legendary. It reminds me kind of a little bit of Charles Durning in The Best Little Whole House in Texas, but it's better than that, um, where you kind of wonder how anybody could have done as much with the role. Because she does get three or four scenes and it's actually a bit longer than her Paper Moon performance the previous year. 
But I think the reason for her nomination was definitely the performance of that song and how well that it plays and the different vocal uh, play, sort of plays that she does, sort of vocal um, theatrics, shall we say. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> just really work comedically. I love that number. Yeah, oh, it's a great song. And her entire performance um, doing a send-up of Marlena Dietrich from start to finish is just a highlight of the film. Um, and it's a very, it's a very kind of loving tribute to Dietrich as well, uh, which is refreshing and straightforward and just so funny. And I think, yeah, it's amazing that she got a Best supporting actress nomination for this amazing in a good way, uh, that, I mean, maybe she was still kind of riding the paper moon nomination high because I wouldn't have expected a movie like this to get an acting nomination. Um, but, but there you go. Uh, I'm so happy that she was nominated for this. It's a shame about Harvey Corman though, uh, risking and then not getting that best supporting actor nomination. <laughs> well, this, I mean, I sort of, the intentional amateurishness of the film bugged me quite a bit from how it started. Cause there are a lot of like anachronisms and things like that. And, um, you know, Mel Brooks is even mentioned at one point. He's like one of the characters says, I'm working for Mel Brooks. Yeah. So I didn't quite understand what it was going for. And I, there were little things like when they exchange outfits with the Ku Klux Klansman. Um, there isn't even an attempt to, to demonstrate that they're kind of fighting behind the rock. It's just quick cut <laughs> done. Um and the same with all the Waco kids' tricks as well. It, it's just the way that it's done is is really, really naff. But when the film ended up breaking the fourth wall in a major way, way towards the end, where they flee the Warner Brothers lot and the actors end up sort of riding off into the actual sunset, that made me reconsider the rest of the movie. And the fact that this was made on such a low budget, 2.6 million budget, it it does almost feel as if Brooks is poking fun at that. Um, so there's this meta nature that the film is going for that all along that partly justified how half-assed some of the effects and plot points were earlier on. So it kind of changed my opinion about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that the... I mean, I kind of enjoyed the anachronisms and the jokes, Um because obviously, you know, it never makes any attempt to be serious. Um, I, I don't. I mean, right from the beginning, you know, with with Bart and the and the other railroad workers singing that uh, Sinatra ta- tune, like it 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 doesn't <laughs> mask the fact that it's not taking itself seriously. And I mean, then he got you know Headley Lamar, who. Um, and then, you know, this is 1874, you can sue her. And then she did sue them, by the way, uh, Hedy Lamar, yeah, uh, for, you know, for, I don't know, some in- some co- some fr- infringement on her right to privacy or, or something like that. But no, yeah, she, uh, she sued. And um, so prescient line. Did she win? I think they settled out of court. I think Mel Brooks... Um, didn't pursue it like they didn't go to court or anything they just kind of uh 
Yeah, just settled for something. Well, she probably saw how much money the film made. Because <laughs> it made $120 million from a $2 million budget. And she thought, I want some of that, you know? Yeah. The um, the settlement, though, included a apology. And I think Mel Brooks had some fun with that because the official uh, apology said that they were issuing an apology for, quote, almost using her name, end quote. So probably would have been better if she just let it go. Did he call him Helly? Is that the joke? It's not Heady, is it? Headley. No, but they all say his name wrong, don't they? Well, yeah, they they don't they they oh yeah they all say Heady. Oh, right? they all say Heady. Okay, well that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I mean I don't think anybody calls him Heady Lamar, or maybe they do. Actually, no, actually I think they do when they're doing the the allegiance bit to. Before the attack, they say, I pledge allegiance to Hedy Lamar, and he has to correct them. So I guess they do say Hedy Lamar at one point, the full name. Was she a Warner's actress then? Um, I don't don't remember. Because oh. I'm guessing this was made by Warner Brothers, since they've got the Warner Brothers a lot, or did they just create that? No, it was, yeah, it was, that? It was Warner Brothers, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned we mentioned the theme song. Um, it's brilliant, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, the perfect kind of over-the-top theme song that, like, you don't notice how ridiculous the lyrics are because it's Frankie Lane singing it with such passion. Uh, but yeah, obviously the lyrics are completely bonkers and... I, I can't imagine it being sung with less passion, though, so I'm glad that he answered the call. Yeah, the way that it's sung is could, could just be a straight-up Western. Um, but, yeah, lyrically, it's really fun, it's rousing, it's got humour to it. And I think Mel Brooks, you know, it's a real achievement that he wrote that and wrote I'm Tired and The Ballad of Rockridge as well. Um, so... Maybe even more than the film itself, I thought the music was a a real high point for me. Yeah, definitely. And don't forget the French mistake. That was in there too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, the the theme song, the recording of it uh, is funny too. The fact that um, he made it, he put an advertisement out just looking for a Frankie Lane type. But then Frankie Lane himself answered the ad, and nobody told nobody told him it was a parody, so he just sang it straight, and apparently was quite embarrassed when he saw the movie and realized that it was a comedy and just this uh, send-up, and he'd put so much heart into the song, and it turned out to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so when was the first time you watched this, then? Is this like a... Home video oh, yeah. experience. Yeah, definitely home video experience. I don't even... I was young. Probably too young, to be honest. Um, but, you know, my parents and my dad especially brought us up with the classics of comedy, especially comedy of this era. So, yeah, Blazing Saddles and the rest of Mel Brooks' uh, filmography, early filmography especially, were uh, were regular uh, on the rotation. We had them all on VHS for sure. And this not nominated for screenplay, but Young Frankenstein was, I believe, this year. 
Yep. Yeah, kind of a weird thing that this didn't get a screenplay nomination. Um, I mean, they had to leave room for Harry and Tonto, I suppose. It was pretty, otherwise a pretty strong uh, lineup. But yeah, uh, Young Frankenstein earning a a well-deserved, I think, nomination for its screenplay as well. Uh, and I've not seen that one. Is it better than Blazing Saddles? It's, I'd say it's different and maybe better in some ways. Yeah, um, if you if you're not looking for the kind of random anachronisms and things like that, then it's better. Yeah, because it's more of a. It definitely takes. It's a parody, of course, of the Frankenstein story, but a very loving one and a very kind of gentle one. And it's hilarious. Yeah, Young Frankenstein, absolutely. Uh, a great film. Gold, however. Yeah, we got to get to that. Um, yeah. Taking Roger Moore, taking a little break from being James Bond, but not a super big break. Like, he's still kind of James Bond here, isn't he? Just he doesn't have a gun. Yeah, well, they mentioned that he's got... I don't know, all these women and he's got sports cars and apparently he's on a fairly low-paid job at the beginning and then he's got all these sports cars anyway. So he's really living this playboy lifestyle in a similar way. Um, But I think the film was quite a big hit and the only reason I can think why is because of this whole Roger Moore bond uh, factor. Yeah. but production values-wise, it's not on that level uh, of Peter Hunt's Bond films. He did a few Bond films, good ones actually, in the 60s. But in terms of the production, it's not quite there with this. It feels very much like a B-movie. Yeah, and indeed it kind of was. I mean, I think it was only released in the US as part of kind of a drive-through double bill, or a drive-in, I should say, double bill. So yeah, it was kind of just a B-movie, something that... Uh, it seems like they were making in-between Bond films. I guess this would have been kind of around the same time he was making The Man with the Golden Gun. And in a lot of cases, he wouldn't have even had to change his outfits. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's hotter in South Africa, though. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Um, Like, I think the fact it was filmed in South Africa was extremely controversial. Be, uh, because of the apartheid situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, pretty unnecessary too, because they have mines in the UK, famously, there are mines here. Um, and there's plenty of, I'm sure they could have found landscapes that looked more or less South African um, in other places that were less, you know, horrible politically. So... Yeah, kind of a a rough background to the film, and apparently uh, Susanna York, uh, who you know plays the love interest, was not quiet about her misgivings about filming there, and and took every opportunity to um, complain about the ill treatment of minors and you know uh, minorities in general in South Africa at the time. Yeah, because I I think because of the apartheid situation the crew wouldn't have been able to be any black members of the film crew, uh, things of that nature. So 
it does seem like a very strange decision and probably an unwise one. Um, so I think, I mean, you wouldn't really gauge from watching the film that, you know, Susanna York's opinion is, is part of the, the filmmaker's opinion um, because the film doesn't have much of an awareness of racial issues or tensions within South Africa at all, you know? There's like one scene in which Kowalski attacks two black workers and Slater comes down on him like a ton of bricks and says, what are you doing? The next time you do that, you're out. And then he offers um, the guys a transfer. But you would think that the filmmakers might feel some responsibility to educate on the racial structure within the gold industry or about the gold industry at all. <laughs> but they just avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame and a missed opportunity. And if they were, yeah, otherwise there's no reason to film in South Africa if you're not going to address that at all. And ultimately, Kowalski, you know, he gets his typical Hollywood villain comeuppance by dying. Um, but the the racism and the just kind of general sliminess of him uh, isn't really a factor in that because, of course, he does also betray uh, Slater and and disengage the safety and all that. So he's he's also a quote unquote proper Bond villain beyond being a racist dick. Yeah, I mean. I don't feel like I learned anything about gold mining <laughs> while watching this, um, which is a bit of a problem because otherwise, you know, it is this sort of straightforward, tame story about corporate greed with a corny romance and some really cartoonish villains. Um, it's very silly, uh, in unintentionally silly, and... <laughs> I mean, you do get some fun bits where I love when the um, the German guy's daughter opens a Christmas present and the bomb goes off. I just it's just such comedy value, um, and apparently that was Patsy Kensett, uh, young Patsy Kensett. So that's interesting, um, but huh. I just I, it's got that sort of boys from Brazil um, aspect to it where it. It thinks it's being all sinister and underhand and it's actually just really cartoonish and stupid. But um and the very idea that when the mining disaster happens, you know, Slater's off skinny dipping on the romantic getaway <laughs> and it just takes him forever to hear the radio announcement. Um but those moments like un unlike Benji and unlike what we're gonna talk about later with the Towering Inferno it seems unintentionally silly and it doesn't have uh, a very great self-awareness about itself or a humor about itself. No, not at all. Which is interesting because um, I keep mentioning it, the Bond movies, Moore's Bond movies do seem to have that self-awareness of some of the sillier aspects of it. Um, so it's it's strange to see him in in a film that doesn't give him kind of his opportunity to just naturally 
have his tongue stuck in his cheek the whole time. Um, it's a shame because it could have been better. I mean, in the ways we mentioned earlier, but it could have been better if it just had a bit of humor about itself. Well, his tongue's wedged down Susanna York's throat for most of it. <laughs> um. That's right. That's true. That's true. Which is another thing, you know, it's difficult to see what enticed either Roger Moore or Susanna York um, to this role as this woman with no real agency. You know, we've, we've talked about this many times. You know, she somehow married a guy that's totally unappealing, does what he tells her, then sort of jumps into the arms of a womanizing Roger Moore at the first opportunity. So... Terry, um, Susanna York's character, doesn't have much independence and doesn't have much interest, so it's difficult to see why she'd want to get involved as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ditto Ray Milland as well, which, you know, one problem I had with the movie is that Ray Milland's character is just so bloody gullible, you know, that you wonder how on earth he's managed to get to the head of a company. Because he's so easily swayed by his daughter and his son-in-law and he doesn't seem to make decisions for the good of the business. So that didn't really ring true for me either. Um, and it was a shame to see him, you know, underused so much. John Gielgud as well, underused, I think. Yeah, the two of them clearly kind of just phoning it in. Uh, and they could have been much better used. Yeah, John Gielgud as the puppet master in London kind of moving the pieces about. And yeah, Ray Milan's character is completely forgettable. May as well not even be there. Um, even though he does, does he get the last line in the film? I think even, which is odd. So what about the song? <laughs> uh, it, I don't know. Goes great with the plane ride. Um, I find it difficult now to hum it or remember how it goes. Maybe it's because it's sung by the same person who sings the the winning song. So I just kind of default to that in my head. Um, but it, it just lyrically, it also is kind of bad. Um wherever love takes me something something will be there together it's just kind of corny and annoying yeah i mean the way it's used in this in the movie is hilarious because they're having this romantic ride in the private plane because not only is slater a hunky lothario with sports cars and a bachelor pad and all the rest of it but he's also got a pilot's license of course he has um <laughs> But wherever love takes me, it just goes, do, 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 do. oh no, I can't even hum it myself. <laughs> I can't remember how it goes. Anyway, um, but it pops up during this romantic sequence, the sort of underlying uh, affair, blossoming affair. And it's just really unmemorable as a song and underwhelming like the romance itself, to be honest. It's just really underwhelming, just typical 70s cheese. Yeah, kind of a unfortunate entry on the list. But not, yeah, not really sure how it got in here, honestly. 
I mean, the the movie didn't get any other nominations, uh, and even though it was a decent, it was decently popular. It's not like it was a smash hit or anything like that. So, yeah. So next up we have the Little Prince, based on the um, fantasy novel. I guess not really a novel, is it? It's kind of a picture book by. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, famous aviator of the who disappeared without a trace, which is always uh, a fun way to go. <laughs> but anyway, um, maybe not for him. <laughs> well, we'll never know. <laughs> but the Little Prince, I mean, it is kind of presaged in the Little Prince, which is kind of about uh, you know crash landing in the Sahara and going on a kind of a trippy adventure so it's a it's a weird book and a weird film yeah we're back to uh family films with this one and you know honestly Hmm. you think you've seen it all (laughs) um (laughs) and then we get heroic dogs and uh whatever this movie is um this sort of podcasting journey is, keeps on surprising us, but um, I think first we should probably address the child actor situation because, Chris, you're not a fan of child actors at the best of times. Stephen Warner, how do you feel about him? Well, I, you know, I don't think at the very least children should learn to enunciate before they can be in movies. Like, this kid can't even say all of his letters yet like he doesn't have a wikipedia page so i don't know how old he was but he he needs to learn to speak okay uh and he's just all of his lines <laughs> he just sounds like such a doofy little sorry i'm getting a getting a look that i should be nicer i'll be nicer um but i know i'm not a fan of Stephen Warner's performance in this movie, and I think he should be in less of it, or there should have been a dog uh, to take my mind off things. I mean, he is in a lot of it. Like, I think it's difficult because the nature of the character is to be annoying because he's wanting to learn about Earth, and so he's asking all these questions like kids do. You know, this poor guy's trying to fix his plane and get the hell out of the desert. And this kid's just constantly bugging him, like, draw a sheep, do this, do that. Um, Which was interesting, because I think if the prince really cared about the planet, he shouldn't really be asking, you know, for all this paper to be wasted. But anyway. Yeah. um, I I don't think that's a fault of the performance. I think that's kind of just the way that it's the prince is written, but... I agree with you about the enunciation. He must be, what, seven? Seems to be. Something like that. Um, I mean, I did like the way that it seemed to be encouraging children to think outside the box. And with the drawing of the snake, eating the elephant and the sheep in the box. And the creativity level was there and the imagination was there. Um very strange film, but I I kind of ended up enjoying it in a weird way. I enjoyed parts of it. Like, I mean, I enjoyed the adults in the movie, and I know that's kind of a betrayal of everything that 
the little prince is about um and i'll I'll admit i get annoyed by grown-ups sometimes but i'm sorry that that drawing i mean i don't see i don't even see a hat much less uh a snake eating an elephant you know if that's what the little prince sees more power to him whatever but uh Ugh. But no, I see, um, I really liked the sequence where he's kind of planet jumping because of the uh, just cameos by comic actors like Victor Spinetti and Joss Auckland. Um, and then, of course, you know, you get Bob Fosse's sequence as the snake. Yeah. It just comes out of nowhere. And it's just, you know, again, maybe they needed 10 minutes filled up and he was around and he's like, you want to just choreograph this dance in the desert? And he just runs with it. Um, and of course, Gene Wilder, uh, always a crowd pleaser popping in as the Fox. So I, I enjoyed moments of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think the highlight was Bob Fosse's sequence and yep. the snake in the grass song, which is really fun. And, you know, the fussy shapes that he's pulling. Because um, there's even like a, a dance interlude that he does sort of in the middle of it, which, you know, could have been pulled from Sweet Cherry. It's just that that kind of vibe. Um, you know, one thing, you know, I did really enjoy the film, but I think it. I just kept thinking how much better would it have been if they'd been able to spend a lot more money on it? Because... Mm. A project like this needs a soundstage, needs great art direction, costumes, and there were moments where the budgetary constraints affected how transporting and how fantastical the film could be. Yeah. You know, what is Bob Fosse wearing in this? <laughs> What's Gene Wilder wearing in this? You know, there should have been more of an effort to theme their costumes around a fox and around a snake, and it just sort of looked like they'd raided their own wardrobes. So, really, the film needed a bigger budget, and this could have been great, but yeah, it it just felt a bit cheap in a way. Like, why they seem to be outside a lot when really the sets would have looked so much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And even the little prince's planet, when it flashes back to that, it just looks very cheap. Uh. And that could have been so much more fantastical and they could have had more fun with that idea of a planet, you know, that tiny. But yeah, they just kind of phoned it in a bit. I don't know what the budget was, but I guess it was pretty low. I mean, I think, you know, in a film of this kind that is so damn weird and... um you know, it, it's it's buying, you know, it's sort of hedging its bets on us, you know, really getting invested in its world building and the, all this weird world building. I think, you know, that the money really would have helped. But I was pleased that Richard Kiley was in this. And I think he gives a really lovely performance. It's sort of very sincere and very beneficial for the film and he kind of sells the nuance of his connection with the boy a little bit more than, than what's on the page. Cause it's a little iffy on the page. Um, and that, you know, his performance of the song at, at the end is actually quite emotional. So I thought he was really, really great. 
because I did read that Frank Sinatra apparently wanted to do this this role, um, but the director was against it. But I, I thought Kylie was fab. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, Kylie was very good. Um, apparently, they were also quite interested in getting Richard Burton as well uh, after he'd just done Camelot on Broadway, but he didn't. He turned it down. But I agree that Richard Kiley is quite good. And then, of course, you've got the songs. Um, I really liked the beginning song, I Need Air. Uh, I wasn't sure at first because it was quite Sondheim-like at first. It was a little bit... I was getting flashbacks to um, a little night music and thinking, oh, no, where's this going? But um, once he got in the sky and everything and the chorus came, I kind of got into it and I think there are a few good songs um, and when you hire Alan J. Lerner to do the lyrics you know you're going to get adventurous wordplay and um, you know we have that in the soundtrack but I'd argue that the song they nominated is not even in the top three of best songs in the film so uh, for me it's a bit puzzling why this one was singled out but I, I like it well enough, and it's a very emotional uh, sort of um, culmination, but I, uh, it wasn't among the best in the movie for me. No, not for me either, and I can't even remember it, honestly. I remember it even less than uh, Wherever Love Takes Me. Maybe because by this point I had tuned out of the film, like Bob Fosse wasn't there anymore, and Gene Wilder done his number, and I just kind of wanted it to end. Um, but yeah, I, I listened to it again just before we started recording this and I still can't remember anything about it. Um, I, I agree though that it's not even close to being the best song in the, in the movie. And yeah, I really don't know why it rose to the top. I did like the, uh, it's a hat slash I need air after it got into the sky and away from that, yeah, that kind of weekend in the country kind of vibes. It was giving me PTSD a bit. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> liked it quite a lot. Interesting aside that um, Angela Morley became the first openly transgender person to be nominated for an Oscar. Oh, yeah. Uh, for this film in the Best Original Song Score category. So Very nice. But... All of these songs, they lost because the 70s were all about disaster films. Uh, they lost to We May Never Love Like This Again, also sung by Maureen McGovern um, in the movie The Towering Inferno. And the Towering Inferno did very well at the Oscars this year, got a Best Picture nomination, and it earned Fred Astaire his only Oscar nomination. And it won four Oscars, so quite a good year. Or three Oscars, I'm sorry, it won three Oscars. Yeah, and I think this is actually a rare example of two studios working together. Because um, Warner Brothers had the rights to the book The Tower, and Fox had the rights to The Glass Inferno, and hence we get The Towering Inferno. Um, and I think, again, in this year there was another disaster film, right? Uh, with Earthquake, which was also a, a big hit and I think was nominated for a couple of Oscars. Um, 
Yeah, a bun a bunch of uh, the technical ones actually, and it won best sound. Yeah, and we've talked about loads of disaster films, haven't we? We talked about Airport, Airport seventy seven, Beside Adventure, Swarm. The Airport seventy five was also this year, but I don't think it got nominated for anything. Oh, but the market was crowded, maybe. <laughs> um, Indeed. Yeah. Where would this rank for you, The Towering Inferno, compared to those movies? Um. Well, I guess it was still kind of early on in the genre. I mean, since it kind of got launched a couple of years before by the Poseidon Adventure. And obviously, you know, it's still getting nominated for Best Picture. So uh, still being taken very seriously by the Academy and by the critics. Um, In rewatching it, I actually liked it quite a lot. talk about production values and talk about you know some hair-raising stunt sequences i think that they did a very good job of combining uh action and once the um kind of once the fire starts going the action moves very quickly yeah and the situation develops very quickly so it doesn't really leave you a lot of room to catch your breath and when it does uh, not for too long. It still gives us those obligatory quiet moments with the characters and the actors to get some uh, monologues in and get some screen time in. Um, so I think as an example of the genre, I think it actually works pretty well. Um, and it's silly, but it's still in an enjoyable way. Yeah, I think at the beginning I was a little worried because it it's awfully slow at the beginning um, until everyone realizes the fire's exists and then it 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 is you know sort of you know sort of um hair raising and action every minute but yeah so the beginning's awfully slow but i I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a catch-22 because too many films these days are so lazy that they don't really take the time to explain backstory and flesh things out whereas the towering inferno does that but still feels a little bit laboured in that first half hour where it's setting everything up and the litany of love stories in this movie <laughs> that <laughs> it's really difficult to keep up with, actually. Um, the strangest of which is probably Jennifer Jones and Fred Astaire's <laughs> quite bizarre relationship where she doesn't even seem to mind that he was planning on conning her out of her thousands of dollars. <laughs> so... <laughs> That was a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, I yeah I d- that was weird to me too. It's almost like the the screenwriters thought, well, how can we realistically portray them ending up together even after he confesses, and just nothing working? It's like, well, what if she just doesn't care, and <laughs> that'll do. But of course, they don't end up together. Spoiler alert. Um, this was. I mean, this must have been one of Jennifer Jones's, uh, and she didn't do much acting in the seventies, did she? Um, this was her last. I think it was her moment. last. Yeah, that's right. But she gets a pretty good one, you know, as a old Hollywood actress, as swan song goes. It's much better than like Olivia De Havilland's non uh, performance in the Swarm. Like she gets Jennifer Jones here. She gets a romance with Fred Astaire. She gets a juicy death scene, um, like. Checking all the boxes, I think. I think Olivia de Havilland was clearly 
treating the swarm with contempt <laughs> from the very beginning, whereas um, yeah. Jennifer Jones at least seems to be taking this fairly seriously. But I mean, the reason that this this disaster film format works is because these these Irwin Allen pictures are approaching it with self awareness, with humour about itself, like Gold just didn't have, you know, with the couple in. Um, post-coital bliss who've you know <laughs> been so consumed with passion that they they haven't realised there's a bloody fire on the other side of the door <laughs> like <laughs> I don't think you lose your sense of smell when you're having it off but you know anyway um, <laughs> them sort of con- as fireballs falling to their deaths in hilariously dramatic fashion is um, just brilliant it, it's but it's filmed really well as well. You know, it's actually quite funny, but it's also a really handsomely shot sequence from John Gierman. Um mm-hmm. So it's even, you know, within its more ridiculous moments, it still looks great. No, yeah. It, it, the whole film looks great, and they really shoot the fire in a very harrowing way, even in those kind of ridiculous scenes where he tries to go and get help and is just immediately consumed by flames and dies. Like as, as far as heroic uh, enterprises go, it's the, probably one of the worst we've covered. Um, he just does not do well, but it still looks amazing. And the 3d shots of the flames shooting out and the various people, yeah, falling to their deaths while on fire. Um, I think even one person at one point falls and hits the side of something and goes spinning down, uh, which I'm guessing James Cameron saw this as a kid and thought, I'm going to put that in a movie someday, but I'm going to make it much more prominent. Uh, so the film has some some long, uh, some far, wide-reaching influence there. Like, What do you think about its the authenticity of the fire itself in terms of what to do when a fire breaks out because you know now when I'm doing fire safety courses with work um, they tell you you know never use water on an electrical fire because it makes it worse so with that in mind would that flood at the end work? Probably probably not Um, but that's all anybody seems to be using is uh, water. So I guess they just hoping people won't notice that. Um, or may- Unless they didn't know that at the time. I mean, there must have been electrical fires before then. And if people tried to use water and it just made it worse, I would think they'd have known that. Um, or maybe they're saying like at that point, all the electricity was off. So it's just a fire at that point, maybe. Um, I do wonder. I do wonder where all the water went, though, because it was. They said it was like five million gallons, but the the ground is completely dry, and people are just walking around like it's nothing at the end of the film. Like that would have been a swamp, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have flooded at least the. Yeah, at least the surrounding area. You would think. Mm-hmm. But. That would have been a, a a big insurance job. Oh yeah, but um, 
I mean, I think it was seen as more of an escapist, you know, blockbuster at the time, but Irwin Allen was kind of going the route of fire safety when the film was released. He was saying, you know, this is about fire safety too. Because these disaster films, they tend to have, you know, anti-corporate messaging and this one, you know, really goes there. But you do have to wonder if this represents some sort of bigger shift in, you know, concerns about negligence and and mistrust in corporations. Because this is like made very shortly after the Watergate scandal. Mm -hmm. So I think it feels like a quite zeitgeisty in the way that it seems to be suggesting that there needs to be more regulation. Because, you know, the Grenfell situation happened only recently in London and that was brought about by unsafe building materials and that block was built in 1972. So I think for the Tower in Inferno, for all of its action spectacle, it kind of strangely has its finger on the pulse here as well. Mm -hmm. You know, because mostly they don't make a point of that, but at the end they do say something like, you know, this is about, they say something along the lines of this could have been prevented. Yeah. No, it has a very strong message in that regard, I think. Um, And of course, you know, the big, it is a big subplot of the film, which is that William Holden uh, was cutting corners. And even though his son-in-law is the clear villain of the piece, he is just following orders, basically um, saying, you know, cut the budget. And he does. And it turns out to be, you know, in all the wrong places. But <laughs> yeah, um, definitely James Duncan, William Holden's character, is the real villain of the piece. And I think he kind of gets out of it. He gets out too cleanly than he really should. Like he ends up on the ground hugging his daughter and he kind of gets a hero's farewell he's like i'll make sure this never happens again and it's like well you could have done that already you know <laughs> so yeah like is he not signing off the electrical stuff is he not looking at the changes that have been made well he yeah he would have looked at everything and approved everything right yeah that is strange he should really have died, especially like when you've got people like Jennifer Jones's character dying for no real reason. Mm-hmm. Which was a, actually that sequence I thought was brilliant with the elevator hanging off. I thought that was so scary. Yeah, that was scary. Although I, I didn't understand how McQueen hanging from the helicopter, how they would have put him on top of the elevator like how could they get that close with a helicopter like they never show the helicopter above so they're kind of just hoping you don't think of that but yeah that w- i mean other than that yeah a very harrowing sequence and um among many harrowing sequences but yeah that was a a highlight for sure but yeah mo- there's not a lot of i mean compared to some other uh, disaster films of the era, uh, it's actually a pretty low body count, um, at least in terms of the of the named actors. Yeah, well, they say 217, don't they? Or something like that in the thing, but a lot of them were firefighters, I think. But 
Yeah, there's a few people. But I mean, like amongst the, yeah, amongst the main cast, it's really only Jennifer Jones and uh, Richard Chamberlain, you know, the uh, the slimy little bastard who cut the corners, uh, and then Robert Wagner and his girlfriend, but pretty much everybody else makes it out. Even the cat survives. Even the cat, yep. So what did you feel about the song? I kind of liked it. Um, I think it's 70s, but in a good way. Um, Like, kind of along the lines of The Morning After uh, from The Poseidon Adventure, which I also quite enjoy. Um, So, and I think that it is used better in this film compared to um, Wherever Love Takes Me. You know, it's being performed, it's there, it's kind of a nightclub number, so it makes sense within the context of the film. Um, I actually kind of liked it. Yeah, I I mean, like with the, the morning after, the fact they've named the song We May Never Love Like This Again with the implication that everyone's going to die in the fire. <laughs> That's why. Um, <laughs> I just love that. The actual song's not great, but it, it's, it's, it works for the purpose, you know, uh, for its purpose, but it's quite a maudlin early 70s tune. Um, I think Fred Astaire actually wrote a song for the movie that was considered too old-fashioned, so God knows what that sounded like because, you know, this song is not exactly (laughs) (laughs) post-modern. But... No. Would he have danced? Oh, that would have been a moment. Well, certainly he couldn't really dance at the end with his beloved dead, could he? No, but they could have given them a, a dance number at the beginning. If if We May Never Love Like This Again was a little more upbeat, a little more swingy, you know? Because, I mean, this was only a few years after he danced at the Oscars, so he could still do it. Oh, I've no doubt. Yeah, definitely. But I think, I mean, the use of the, the song is what adds an extra dimension to to it for me so yeah so we have a couple of listener questions uh this week andrew carden asked did this year's bond theme the man with the golden gun deserve a nomination uh short answer no um (laughs) i think it's nice that lulu got to do a bond theme and i do like lulu but it's kind of a weak effort in the the 007 canon of, of theme songs for me. Yeah. And I think there were other options. I mean, this isn't... When we get onto the snubs, we'll talk about it. There's not loads for me, um, but I still wouldn't have nominated this. No, I wouldn't either. And especially, yeah, coming off of the previous Bond theme, which was Live and Let Die, it's a pretty big step down. Um, I agree that... I agree, Lulu's a great singer, and it's great that she did a Bond theme, but she wish she'd had a better one. Yeah, this one's a, kind of a forgettable one. And Owen asks, would you consider I'm Tired from Blazing Saddles worthy of being nominated alongside the titular tune? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Maybe, I mean, borderline, maybe even better than the theme tune, but that certainly, certainly would have been a great addition to the lineup. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have knocked it out, but I would have liked to see them both 
nominated alongside each other would have been great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I guess that segues nicely into snubs. And um, I do, like, I mean, we mentioned that the nominated song from The Little Prince was um, not the strongest song, so I do want to say Snake in the Grass, I think, would have been a better nominee from that uh, from that movie. And even Closer and Closer and Closer, uh, which I don't like as much, but better than the title song. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I Never Met a Rose also got... In fact, got the Golden Globe nomination instead of Little Prince, which would have been a better option. I agree, Snake in the Grass is probably better. I Need Air, also better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from that, I think Curtis Mayfield was nominated for a Golden Globe for On and On from Claudine. Um, yeah, that would have been a great one. And I wanted to mention Leonard Skinner. Um the song Saturday Night Special, which is from The Longest Yard, which probably would have been very atypical for a Best Original Song nominee, really. Although Wings had gotten a nomination, but they weren't quite, you know, they were a little bit more middle of the road than Leonard Skinner was. Um, But yeah, that would have been a definite improvement. Yeah. Well, I was going to also mention um, another Saturday Night themed um, film which is called uh, Uptown Saturday Night uh, and the theme song from that film um, I think is a really would have been a great um, nominee it's a very funky uh, kind of tune and I haven't seen the movie but the movie looks pretty funky as well with uh, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte um, unfortunately also Bill Cosby which probably means I won't watch it um, but the song is great. Um, so that would have been an interesting, uh, nominee as well, I think. So wider observations then on 1974, the year of the Godfather part two. Uh, yeah. So that won six Oscars, uh, Francis Ford Coppola won three, uh, by himself. And so did his father Carmine winning best original score, which, was a bit of a vindication after the disqualification for The Godfather in 72. Um, and also Talia Shire, his sister, nominated as well. So very much a family affair there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six Oscars, yeah, double the amount that the first film got, which is kind of kind of insane. And then, of course, we had, this was the, uh, the rematch between Fosse and Coppola for Best Director. And, of course, this time... Uh, Coppola emerged triumphant. And they would go on to have one more duel uh, in 1979, but in that year, neither of them won because that was Kramer versus Kramer's year. So, because I prefer The Godfather Part 2 to Part 1, although I think both are great films, where do you stand on that? Because we've done, we've done 1972 and 1974 and The Godfather was not part of either category, so we've not really... Got, had a chance to talk about the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it would be great to find a category that we could talk about it with. Of course, we talked about how ridiculous it was that it wasn't part of our production design 1972 uh, discussion, not nominated in favor of 
young Winston or whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, so not to spoil a future uh, discussion on the topic, we could, for example, do best actor for this year at some point um, and get and work it in. Um, but I would say that I also generally think of The Godfather Part Two as a superior film. Um, they're both obviously masterpieces. Although my my feelings towards Godfather Two soured a little bit when Coppola did uh, what he called his, the Godfather Saga, uh, which was a re-release of the three films recut into chronological order. Oh God! Which t- took away, you know, obviously I think one of the better parts. What makes the Godfather Two superior? to the original is that contrast right between Don Corleone and Michael. Um, and Cal- and Coppola said that in fact, the strict chronological order was the way he wanted to do it in the first place, um, which kind of retroactively made me dislike him and therefore the Godfather part two a little bit. Um, but ignoring that the way it stands out. Yes. The Godfather part two to me is, is also, I also like that, uh, more than Godfather, part one. I wanted to mention the costume design nominees. Um, all of the costume design nominees this year were for films made by Paramount. And that was the first time that one studio has gotten all the nominations in a category. Wow. Hmm. That's a pretty wild selection too. Um, we may do Best Actor, but Art Carney one best actor and which is quite an unpopular win i think and but i think even even worse for me is that gene hackman was not even nominated for the conversation yeah which is just a criminal decision to be honest but you know especially i mean i, I have not seen harry and Tot, tonto but i definitely think hackman is better than albert finney yeah well maybe a better Maybe a better uh, category this year if we wanted to get all the all the good stuff would be director, because uh, then we'd get Godfather, get Chinatown, and Lenny. But then we'd also get Truffaut's Day for Night and Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence, which is an amazing movie uh, as well. So maybe that's our maybe that's our baby. Maybe that's the one we need to focus on. Um, one more thing, um, just kind of a kind of an anomaly of Oscars uh, this year, kind of two things coming together. Um, sometimes, you know, you get the situation where a foreign language film gets nominated in foreign language film, but gets kind of other Oscar nominations in a different year because of releases. And this year is interesting because, you know, you have... Francois Truffaut's Best Director nomination for Day for Night, um, and it got a couple of others as well for Original Screenplay and also Valérie Perrine. Um, no, not Valérie Perrine. Um, Valentina Cortese, yeah, yeah, sorry, um, for acting. The year after it won Best Foreign Language Film uh, in 1973, and then this year you have a Marcord by Fellini willing Best Foreign Language Film, and the following year, 1975, uh, Fellini was nominated for Best Director uh, for the same film, and it also got a screenplay nomination. And 
uh, to date, that's the last time a film has been nominated in separate years at the Oscars. Wow. I think also we did when we did um, The Emigrants, Jan Troll, that happened to him as well, didn't it? Yeah, and he got the he got the two two movies in the same year. Although he didn't win. It didn't win. It lost foreign language, didn't it? Yeah. Um, it did, yeah. Yeah. I think that must I mean that obviously that speaks to the, the fact that um foreign films are generally getting released a bit more in the US. Um Yeah. Although I think City of God is City of God an example of that came out the year after, I think, in the US, but it still all counts as one year now because of the foreign language film rules. So, yep, yep. So, the immortal question Why did um, We May Never Love Like This Again win, and was it a close one? Well, I think. You know, judging by what we've we've said, I think we both agree that this wasn't the greatest field of songs. And, you know, I, I tend to find this a little bit with the Eurovision Song Contest, but I think when you get a big group of people voting on a consensus about music, because it's a consensus, it tends to go towards something maybe a little regressive within the industry itself, something that's not pushing boundaries too much honestly and here you have a cheesy 70s love song um, by the Bergmans who were Hollywood royalty at this point and the most popular film of the five by a long stretch so I don't think this was close yeah I agreed and of course it you know Towering Inferno was as we mentioned uh, a very highly nominated film so it was inevitable that it was going to win a bunch um and this was one of them so how do we rank them you want to go first sure um so at number five i have little prince um simply because i can barely remember it and there's other <laughs> better songs in the in the soundtrack uh, four, I have Wherever Love Takes Me, just nearly as forgettable, um, because honestly, I can't remember it much either. Number three, uh, We May Never Love Like This Again. Um, actually, like I said, I actually do kind of like it. Um, and from here on up, these are songs that I wouldn't mind listening to. Um, but it's maybe just a little too 70s. <laughs> and then... Um, Number two, I have I Feel Love, Benji's theme. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, and but, you know, you can't hear it without seeing Benji trotting along and just having the time of his life. So, yeah, it's got that positive association. Um, and it's just so optimistic. And But finally, at number one, I've got Blazing Saddles. Um it's the combination of the lyrics and the music, which is actually quite stirring, and Frankie Lane's committed vocal performance just come together. I know that's not really a factor, right? Because it's it's about the songwriting, not necessarily the performance. 
Um, but even just leaving that aside and just leaving it as a song, it's just a very well-written Western theme uh, with some really great lyrics and a kind of a, a very great understanding of what makes a good Western theme song. Okay, so we've got a few differences. Um, at five, I've got Wherever Love Takes Me. I think it was, you know, the, the worst use of a song of the five, like within the movie itself. Um and as a song, it was really, really forgettable. Four, I've got I Feel Love from Benji, because I think it's just a ridiculously simple song that, you know, the lyrics, you probably could have written it on a beer mat in about 20 seconds, you know. <laughs> um, three, I've got Little Prince, because I did think it had an emotional resonance, but I agree that... I couldn't for the life of me remember the lyrics beyond the first two lines. Um, two, I have We May Never Love Like This Again because of its comedic value and its sort of contrapuntal value in the film itself. And also because I think it's a decent tune for the kind of tune it is. And by an absolute mile, number one, Blazing Saddles, because it's iconic, um, it's a great rousing introduction to the movie. And it's sung very well, I agree. And it's just a clear winner for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. It wasn't hard to put it at number one. If I'm Tired had been nominated, do you think you'd put it above? See, this is another issue because is is the song better because Madeleine Kahn is performing it? So then are we taking into account the way it's performed? So I don't know. But I do think probably there's more lyrically going on in I'm Tired. And I like that it's the idea about, like, the man's not satisfying her. I kind of like that um, sort of theme to it. (laughs) So I probably would have put that. I probably would have done a tie, but we've never done a tie before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, it's got to happen one of these days, just like at the Oscars. So um, we have a website, it's categoricallyasters.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Um, stop by, give us a listen, leave us a review. Um, we always ask for reviews, and uh, at this point I'd even take a negative one. Uh, just like to hear your thoughts. Um, Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll see if we regret that. Um, but keep sending us in those lovely questions. They're always fun to answer. Next week, we will be taking our third look at the 45th Academy Awards after previously looking at um, the best costume design and best international feature film categories. We will be taking on, in my opinion, an absolute all-timer of a lineup Best Actor, and the nominees that year were Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier, both for Sleuth, Peter O'Toole for The Ruling Class, Paul Winfield for Sounder, and the winner Marlon Brando for The Godfather. Hope you'll join us for that. See you then. shining star his job to offer battle to bad men near and far 
He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. When outlaws ruled the West and fear filled the land, a cry went up for a man with guts to take the West in hand. They needed a man who was brave and true, with justice for all as his aim. Then out of the sun rode a man with a gun, and Bart was his name. Yes, Bart was his name. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch. 